Welcome to Shabbat Shalom. This is your host, Sam Frankart, and this is episode 60. So I've been in Texas for the last couple of weeks, and I've really never struggled with allergies before, but man, they are hitting me hard. Um, It's been super windy today too, so I'm thinking that that probably blew some stuff up and um, yeah, just really struggling with allergies. So I want to apologize in advance if I sound sniffly or congested. These allergies, they're getting me. But we are going to press on because there's a lot of exciting good stuff that we'll be digging into today. So yes, episode 60, and that alone is actually crazy to me as well. Cannot believe that we started this journey almost a whole year ago. It's it's wild that I am able to say that we're together here for episode 60. So thanks for joining me. Thanks for being here for the ride. It has been a lot of fun and it will continue to be. So thanks for being here. Today, we're studying Revelation 21, and this is the place in Revelation where we get to talk about the new heaven and the new earth. This is the beauty and the glory that we've been longing for. So this is a chapter that I'm excited to dig into with you. There's a shift between the first eight verses and the end of the chapter, so this episode will cover the first verses one through eight, and then next episode will cover the remainder of the chapter. Alright, so I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Look! God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost, from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. We read in verse 1 that there is a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. We read last chapter in Revelation 20 verse 11 that the earth and sky had fled from God's presence, and now this new heaven and new earth took their place. The idea of a new earth with a new atmosphere and sky is a familiar theme in the scriptures. Many of the prophets, both Old and New Testament, spoke of this new heaven and new earth. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 65, 17-19, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for behold, 
I created Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Peter also wrote about it in 2 Peter 3, 12-13. He wrote, Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So, side note here, it's worth remembering that the new heaven referred to doesn't mean the heaven where God is enthroned. The Bible uses the word heaven in three senses. The first heaven is the earth's atmosphere, or the blue sky. The second heaven is outer space, or the night sky. And the third heaven is the place where God lives in glory. When the scriptures speak of a new heaven, they mean a new blue sky and a new night sky, not a new heaven where God dwells. The ancient Greek word translated new here means new in character or fresh. It doesn't mean recent or new in time. And this just this isn't just the next heaven and the next earth. This is the better heaven and better earth replacing the old. In verse 2, we read that in addition to the new heaven and new earth, John saw a new city. The new Jerusalem is where God lives among his people. God had become man in Jesus Christ and had lived among sinful people in a broken world. At the end of time, God will come down to his new heaven and new earth to be with his renewed people. This city is referenced many times throughout scripture. This is the Jerusalem of hope in Hebrews 12:22, the Jerusalem above in Galatians 4:26, and the place of our real citizenship in Philippians 3, verse 20. The terms holy and new distinguish this city. Because it is holy and new, it is different from any earthly city. The name Jerusalem gives it continuity with the earth as the capital of Israel, as the old creation had been corrupted by sin, so the old Jerusalem had been the city where prophets were killed and where Jesus was crucified. Yet, throughout the Old Testament, there are promises for this future restoration of Israel. We also read that Jerusalem arrives as a bride adorned for her husband. And John used this most striking, beautiful image he could think of. The most beautiful thing a man will ever see is his bride coming down the aisle, ready to meet him. And John said that this is how the beautiful, this is how beautiful the New Jerusalem will be. And God's people, all believers, will live in this magnificent city. In Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, God's people, the church, it's described as a bride making herself ready for the marriage feast. We read in verse 3 that God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And this succinctly states the essence of God's desire and man's purpose. Simply, God's desire is to live in close fellowship with us, and our purpose is to be a people unto God. If you remember nothing else from this episode, remember this. I'll say it again. God's desire is to live in close fellowship with us, and our purpose is to be a people unto God. Verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, 
for the old order of things has passed away. What a great hope we look forward to. All that has caused sadness and suffering will be taken away. All sin that had been a source of sorrow will be gone. The new Jerusalem is distinguished by what it does not have. There are no tears, there's no sorrow, no death, no pain. And later it will be shown that the new Jerusalem has no temple, no sacrifice, no sun, no moon, no darkness, no sin, and no abomination. Sice wrote this in his commentary on this verse. He said, Man comes into the world with a cry and goes out of it with a groan, and all between is more or less intoned with helpless wailing. But the hallelujahs of the renewed world will drown out the voice of woe forever. I love that quote. Isaiah wrote about this as well in the Old Testament. He wrote in Isaiah 35.10 about a future day when, quote, the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In verse 5, God says from his throne that he is making all things new. God is the creator. The Bible begins with the story of God creating the universe, and it concludes with him creating a new heaven and a new earth. This is such a picture of hope and encouragement for believers. God told John to write this so the believers across generations awaiting this glorious future can be encouraged to know that these words are trustworthy and true. Because God has spoken, we can know with absolute certainty that these events will one day take place. All right, I'll read verses 6 through 8. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. God says in verse 6, it is done. God's eternal purpose in Jesus is now accomplished. Just as God finished the work of creation in Genesis and Jesus finished the work of redemption, so they will finish the entire plan of salvation by inviting the redeemed into a new creation. God also says, To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And then the next chapter of Revelation, in Revelation 22, water symbolizes eternal life. And when I read this, it made me think of that story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. This is found in John 4, 13 through 14. And he says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Water is pictured as salvation, and God's offer is to anyone who thirsts. Here in Revelation, water pictures the reward of those who have been victorious. And Charles Spurgeon wrote about this verse as well. He said, quote, What does a thirsty man do to get rid of his thirst? He drinks. Perhaps there is no better representation of faith in all the word of God than that. To drink is to receive. 
to take in the refreshing drought, and that is all. A man's face may be unwashed, but yet he can drink. He may be a very unworthy character, but yet a drought of water will remove his thirst. Drinking is such a remarkably easy thing, it is even more simple than eating. Thank you, Spurgeon. All right, verses 7 and 8. They form what seem to be an interlude. They present a choice. There are those who are victorious and those who are cowardly. Those who are victorious will inherit all the blessings, and the cowards will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The list in verse 8 describes those who reject Jesus, and it starts with listing cowardly. So, is cowardice enough to send a person to hell? David Guzik wrote about this in his commentary, and he said that John is not speaking of natural timidity, but of the cowardice which in last resort chooses self and safety before Christ. Another commentary stated that this list describes the beast's followers. It's not meant to be exhaustive, but it's representative of all sin and all rebellion against God. Those who refuse to believe, no matter how good or moral they are, will join those whose sins are more blatant, as recorded in this list. According to the Life Application Bible Commentary, the cowards in this verse are those who turn back from following God, not those who are faint-hearted in their faith or who sometimes doubt or question. The cowards are not brave enough to stand up for Christ. They are not humble enough to accept His authority over their lives. And in contrast, the victorious are those who overcome and stand firm to the end. Those who can endure the testing of evil and remain faithful will be rewarded by God. Well, that's all we have for today. Check out the show notes for a link to a commentary from David Guzik on Revelation 21, as well as other commentaries. We'll finish out Revelation 21 next week. You can find me on Instagram at Sam Frankart. Until then, Shabbat Shalom, Maranatha.